You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to the Gospel according to John 14, 15 to 31, and thereafter we'll turn to chapter 16, the verses 5 to 16. And here, if you look at the context, you will note that it's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is speaking. And he says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father And I, too, will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But, Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away, and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer. For the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now. Let us leave. Then we turn to John chapter 16, the verses 5 to 16, where once again the Lord Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit. Now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief, but I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. 
and in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. And that is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. In a little while, you will see me no more. And then, after a little while, you will see me. We've come in the Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 20, and therefore I would like to preach to you this afternoon from the Word of our God as the Church confesses and summarizes this in Lord's Day 20 of the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 53. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, he is together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. Second, he has also given me to make me by true faith share in Christ and all his benefits to comfort me and to remain with me forever. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, when was the last time that anyone challenged you? Perhaps it was last week or last month when at school your teacher returned a test you had done and basically said to you, you can do better than this. Or maybe it was that boss who commented, I had expected when I hired you a lot better work from you. Or maybe it was your father or mother who said to you on one fine day, why are you not using your talents and living up to your God-given potential? Of course, None of us like to be told these things. It's kind of embarrassing, unsettling, unnerving. It forces us, hopefully, to take a good hard look at ourselves and perhaps to dig a little deeper. In short, these kind of challenging questions attack our comfort zone. But I think, if we're honest with ourselves, we do have to admit that we, we need this. From time to time, we need to be challenged. We need teachers, employers, we need fellow workers, we need parents and siblings to sometimes challenge us, confront us, somehow to bring out the best in us and to spurn us on to that next level. Well, in some ways... You could say the Heidelberg Catechism does exactly the same thing. Repeatedly, if you look very carefully and if you read closely, you will understand that the Catechism is kind of challenging time and time again. It begins already in Lord's Day 1, question and answer 1. What is your only comfort in life and death? Come on, I want to hear it. What's your only comfort? Can you phrase it? Can you verbalize it? Can you tell me? 
And you know, it goes on from there. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? From where do you know this? What do you understand? What do you understand by the providence of God? And so the questions come one after another. And you know, they also come here in Lord's Day 20, question and answer 53. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? The catechism's not asking, what does your dad believe about the Holy Spirit? He's not asking, what does the church confess about the Holy Spirit? No, it's asking, what do you believe personally about the Holy Spirit? See, this is about you. This is about us. So what do we believe about the Holy Spirit? If I had the deacons pass around a piece of paper this afternoon, I'm tempted to do that from time to time, and and ask you to write out the answer, what what would it look like? If we turn this whole auditorium into one large classroom, what would the answers be like? I suspect some would be long, some would be short, some would be probably theological, abstract. Hopefully most of them would be accurate, but I suspect a few of them would also be heretical. I'll be that as it may. I doubt, however, that any one of us would be as brief and as succinct as Lord's Day 20 is when it comes to the Holy Spirit. For many years, I've kind of lamented its brevity, but as I get a bit older, I also learn to appreciate it more and more. Actually, truly, this answer, short as it may be and succinct as it may also be hit, it's all the right notes, doesn't get lost in detail, it gets to the heart of the matter. And in doing so, I dare say, it's a thing of beauty. And beauty is always worth an extra look. So let's do that. I preach to you on the theme, the beauty of the Spirit. And we're going to see it's amply evident in the wonder of his person and in the marvel of his works. Well, beloved, before we can deal this afternoon with beauty, we first should deal with a bit of ugliness. And what do I mean by ugliness? Well, there is an ugly side to the answer of the Heidelberg Catechism here in Lord's Day 20. The question you'll note is, what do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? And now the ugliness, you can say, is in the fact that this question even needs to be asked in the first place. And it's also in the answer. He is together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. Why does that have to be put into words? Is it not obvious? Is it not clear enough just as to who the Spirit is? And should all of this not actually be second nature to us? 
Well, it should be, and it would be, were it not for the fall into sin. God the Father created the world in order that man could live and serve in it, could refresh and enjoy himself in it. But how does man repay God for his marvelous creation? By asking whether or not God even exists in the first place. And God takes, God the Son takes the sins of rebellious mankind on Himself and, and pays for them by dying a horrible death on the cross. And how does man repay Him? By accusing Him of blasphemy and asserting that it's a gross insult that Jesus dares to call Himself the Son of God. And God the Holy Spirit creates this wonderful bond between Man and God. And how is he repaid? By doubts and questions as to whether or not the Spirit really is God. And by lowering him down to an it, or a force, or a thing. And denying him every aspect of personality. If you think of it, beloved, how, how sad all of that is. It testifies to the fact that we have fallen a long, long way. We no longer have an eye for the Father's existence, for the Son's redemption, for the Spirit's transforming work. We live in darkness, ignorance, and superstition. And as a matter of fact... It leads one to wonder, God the Father made the world so beautifully and so intricately that still today men and women continually marvel at the created realm. But now does he have to erect billboards on roadsides, put ads on television, fly banners in the sky saying, I made this, remember? Has it come to this? Has it gone so far? God the Son came into the world and became involved in an act of love so great, so incomprehensible, that everyone who understands even a little about it marvels. And now does he have to take us by the hand, willingly or unwillingly, and ask, this is what I did for you? Please, please do not forget it. Have we stooped so low? And finally, God the Spirit helps us every day in a most unscrutable way, in such a way that we could never thank Him enough. He brings into our hearts what is not there naturally or automatically, namely the love of the Father and the compassion of the Son. But now what do we do? What do we hear people saying? You can hear it as well. Oh, they all by themselves, they found God. And they've let Him into their hearts. And they've accepted Him. And no mention is made of the fact that the Spirit made that dead heart alive, that hard heart soft, and that stubborn heart willing. 
Have we become so callous? So what an indictment it is against mankind. That the catechism has to stand up these days and shout, the Holy Spirit is together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. But still, beloved, the catechism does proclaim it because the scripture pronounces it and we should be thankful. For this truth needs to be told. People need to hear it. They need to know that the Spirit is God, that He is true and eternal God, that He's the third person of the triune God. But how shall we tell them? Will a host of biblical proof texts do the trick? Will a pile of miracle stories sufficiently impress you? I think there's a better way. Perhaps the best way is to point to two things. And the first is, is love. And indeed, I would say to you this afternoon, there is a sense in which that's actually where everything begins. Why did God the Father decide to stage his great rescue mission in the beginning? And the answer is, as Jesus says in John 3, is because God so loved the world. It was love that drove him, that caused him to act. Eternal love, perfect love, divine love. And the same goes for God the Son. Why did he come to this earth in the fullness of time? It had everything to do with love and sacrifice. Why else lay down your life? Why else give yourself over to suffering, crucifixion, and death? It was love for his people that propelled him. Yes, and the same applies, you need to understand, for God the Holy Spirit. After Jesus arose, he ascended and he went back to heaven. For 33 years he lived here, but then he went up. Yet no sooner does he go up and someone else comes down. Yes, and that someone is still here thousands of years later. Indeed, he's still here working in our sour, sick, and sinful lives. He's still working with dead people, with crooked people. He's still laboring, so to speak, in the coal mines. And why? To renovate, restore, and to renew us. Talk about love. How great is the love of the Spirit for the Father. How great is the love of the Spirit for the Son. But how great is also the love of the Spirit for you and for I. So, beloved, love, divine love is the first thing that proves that the Spirit is God. And then there's another thing. It's called power. You see, you need power, 
real power, great power, divine power to do what the Spirit does. And the Spirit has it. You know, it's sometimes been said the two hardest things to do in life is to create and then to recreate. To make this world out of nothing was hard. It's impossible to us to imagine it. To remake man who is dead in sin and trespass is just as hard. Two impossible works. And the Spirit was and is involved with both. In the very beginning, he hovered over the face of the waters. And up until today, he still makes makes dead people alive. Spiritually, wonderfully, miraculously alive. And who else can do that? Who else can turn a Saul into a Paul? A sinner into a saint? A demoniac into an evangelist? A shady Samaritan lady into an oracle of forgiveness in the gospel. Truly the Spirit is God. And because He is God, you and I can joyfully confess, I believe, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And indeed He is together with the Father and the Son, the one true an eternal God. But then, beloved, if the Heidelberg Catechism here, according to the Scriptures, reminds us about the person of the Spirit, there are also the works of the Spirit mentioned here. And you know, whenever it comes to the works of the Spirit, we are tempted right away to go towards the spectacular things like tongues and miracles and visions and become all consumed and caught up with those kind of what I would call temporary New Testament church spiritual phenomena. But notice the catechism doesn't do this. It doesn't begin there. doesn't end there. doesn't even mention the spectacular. Now, the catechism begins elsewhere. It begins with the Holy Spirit as, as a gift. Now that, the idea of the Holy Spirit as a gift, that's a hard place for us people to begin. We would much rather start with the idea of the Holy Spirit as a reward or as a dessert. In other words, we have to earn Him. He's only given to me after I have proven myself or after I have expended a sufficient amount of effort or after I have devoted myself adequately to prayer and other spiritual disciplines. Only after I've done all of those things do I receive the Spirit. And the result is that people who have an inflated opinion of themselves and their spirituality are are quick to claim him as a reward. It's kind of like icing on the cake of your religiosity. They've earned it. But at the same time, there are also those who doubt 
and remain ambivalent. They look at themselves and they see that they have still so much work to do and and there's always more work. There are always more sins to, to conquer. There's, there's always more progress in sanctification that's needed. They're not there yet, so they can't claim Him. And in most cases, they never ever will. Well now, beloved, over against such an approach, the one too hasty and the other too reticent, What a blessing to be reminded here in the Heidelberg Catechism that the Holy Spirit is a gift. He's given to me. He's not earned. He's not merited. I don't have to collect 10,000 points in order to get him. Think of David. David composes Psalm 51 after his lamentable sin with Bathsheba and what he did to Uriah. And in that psalm, he addresses an earnest plea to God. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Obviously, David believes that he has the Spirit. He has the Spirit as divine gift. Only he has, and he's aware of that, he has betrayed the Spirit and everything he stands for by his sin. And in addition, the Spirit has a lot more work to do in him. The overhaul of his spiritual life is just beginning. And the worst possible thing that could happen to him now is for God to remove the Holy Spirit from him. So he pleads to keep what he already has. And beloved, you and I can do the same. Thankfully, we live in the New Testament dispensation, and it's it's very much the dispensation of the Spirit. Pentecost means that the Spirit has been poured out and given to all the people of God. He's been given to us. Not because we've earned Him or merited Him. No, it's a gift of God's sovereign Free grace. Another token of His love. But then if the Spirit is gift, you can also notice here the Spirit is also described as a kind of bridge. The Catechism says that He makes me share in Christ and all His benefits. There is no other way that you and I would be able to share in Christ and in all that He has achieved and accomplished were it not for the Holy Spirit. Scripture says the Spirit brings us to Christ. The Spirit keeps us in Christ. The Spirit grows us in Christ. 
You know, in a manner of speaking, it's as if there is this huge river dividing two countries. Or if you want to think about it as the Fraser River dividing the North Shore from the South Shore. And you know, unless there is a bridge between those two, not much is going to happen. And so it is, in a sense, with us in Christ. He's on the one shore, you can say, we are on the other. But then along comes the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit acts as the bridge between us and Christ. He bridges the gap. And the result is that the goods and the gifts begin to flow fast and furious. Gifts of hope and faith and love. Gifts of joy and peace, of righteousness and and holiness, of patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. You see, the Holy Spirit is this fantastic bridge linking us to Christ and to all of His glorious, gracious, marvelous benefits. But then, beloved, if the Spirit is gift and bridge, He's also the counselor. The Catechism talks about who comforts me. And, of course, the source of that expression can be found in John 14 as well as in John 16, where the Lord Jesus is busy telling His disciples, His followers, about that other counselor. And it's interesting, the Lord Jesus gives a lot of different reasons as to why it's important that this other counselor comes, because he says this counselor is going to live with you, he's going to live in you, he's going to teach you, he's going to remind you, he's going to convict and he's going to convince the world, but also you, he's going to guide and he's going to reveal all kinds of things. He's going to be there to help you every day. And if you look at that list, and God knows and we all know that we need help as we go through the struggles of this life. Sometimes we think we can do it all in our own strength and in our own steam, but then we discover soon enough that that's not possible. We need help. We need support. We need counsel. We need comfort. And Christ says, here it is, in the Spirit. So what would we do without the Spirit? What a blessing it is to know that He's there to help us, to strengthen us, to console us. And that as long as we have Him, we are never, ever without resources and opportunities and gifts and blessings. No Christian can plead poverty, want, or deprivation as long as we have Him. We are never without a hiding place, a fortress, a rock, a stronghold. Because we have God's greatest, most effective, powerful counselor with us and in us. And so the Spirit is our gift, our bridge, 
our counselor, and one more thing, he's also our, our companion. The Catechism says he remains with me forever. In other words, that's simply saying the Spirit goes with you every day, through everything, everywhere. And now that's not just wishful thinking on the part of the authors of this particular catechism. No, it was the Lord Jesus who made this abundantly clear when he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Not just for a season or a time or a year. Forever. And indeed, the Lord Jesus insists. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. And how can he say that? He goes away. Yes, but the Spirit of the living God remains among the people of God. As long as we have the Spirit, we can never claim to be orphans. Yes, and the Spirit travels with us over the hills and through the valleys of life and sometimes on the mountaintops as well. He goes with us over known territory and uncharted pathways. He goes with us today and tomorrow. He goes with us in good times, bad times, times of health, times of sickness, times of plenty, times of poverty, times of employment, unemployment, business success, business failure. You can add to the list. We never, ever, anymore have to travel Alone. That's what Jesus is teaching us. Because we have the Spirit as gift, as bridge, as counselor, and as eternal comforter. And you, beloved, may revel in all of those blessings and gifts of the Spirit. But in the process, don't forget one thing. All of this is by faith and faith alone. You'll notice right in the middle of that second part of its answer, the Catechism speaks about true faith. The Spirit works faith in us. Go back to Lord's Day 7. And now here in Lord's Day 20, the Spirit insists that we walk and live. By faith. In other words, he expects us to have that, that knowledge of God that's grounded in his word, and he expects us to have that, that trust and that confidence that there's no God like our God, and there's no Savior who compares to our Savior. And there's no Spirit who compares to the Holy Spirit. Faith is building your life on the foundation of the triune God. And when you do that, then you can live and rejoice 
And you can meet all the obstacles and all the setbacks of life head on. So are you doing that? Are you living out of faith? Or are you living out of routine? Are you living out of your own faith? Or your mother's faith? Is your life a life of true faith? If it is, go ahead. Enjoy, soak up, and admire every day the beauty of the Spirit of the living God. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.